Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, the Australian state of Victoria has pulled the plug on hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games, saying ballooning costs meant it just no longer made sense. Now, it comes as Canada looks to host in 2030 as the Games mark 100 years since the very first one, the Empire Games in Hamilton, Ontario, back in 1930. But could this latest setback be a fatal blow for the event as more and more jurisdictions balk at the price tag and question the long-term benefits? We meet a southwestern Ontario man who's turned his lifelong love of vintage John Deere tractors into a huge collection and now plans for a little museum. It looks like the end for America's oldest craft brewery. San Francisco's Anchor Brewing is set to shut at the end of this month, and it comes as craft beer and beer sales in general have gone a bit flat right across North America. We find out what's going on. But first, it's proving to be another tough summer right across Canada's healthcare system. Canadian Medical Association President Dr. Alika Lafontaine joins us to talk about his one-year term nearing its end now, what progress he's seen, the challenges, and why he believes there is cause for optimism. to begin with emergency rooms. I was reading again over the weekend that a number of smaller emergency rooms across this country continue to close their doors over the weekend, especially, and in evenings and so on, uh, mainly because of staff shortages, right? Uh, over the weekend, hospitals in Carleton Place and Almonte outside of Ottawa were temporarily closed due to a nursing shortage. It has been something that has been going on now for quite a while and a problem that seems to be very difficult to solve, needless to say. In the past few months, we've seen staffing issues uh, in hospitals across the country, emergency room closures, huge backlogs. That, as provincial and territorial premiers gathered last week for those three days of meetings in Winnipeg, um, the chaos in Canada's healthcare system, if you want to call it that, was front and centre once again. On the agenda was how to use that 46 billion dollars in new health funding that the Prime Minister offered up in February in exchange for provinces and territories committing to targeted reform. So there are strings attached to this money, and that was the condition that Ottawa put on it. All but Quebec have accepted the funding offer, but no one yet has submitted any plans on those targets and timelines and how they'll use the new funding uh, to fix public health care programs. That's always the problem. You give provinces money, where does that money go, right? Does it all go to health care where it's supposed to? One might think by looking at the way the healthcare system is struggling that perhaps some of it doesn't. And it has been, without exaggeration, a very challenging last 12 or 11 months for healthcare across this country. And since last August, my next guest has been overseeing more than 68,000 member physicians and trainees as president of the Canadian Medical Association, the largest advocacy group for medical doctors in this country. Uh, Dr. Alika Lafontaine is an anesthesiologist in Grand Prairie, Alberta. That's his full-time gig, but he's been very busy for the past year as president of the CMA since August 21st, becoming its first Indigenous leader. And we thought we would catch up with Dr. Lafontaine now, as we have a few times over the past year, just to see how things are going, what his perspective is, what he thinks about where things are headed. And Dr. Lafontaine joins me now. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. It's been a, uh, you know, obviously the strains are showing again this summer. I don't imagine that comes as a huge surprise to you. But what are we seeing across the country summer 2023? You know, I, I imagine it's extremely frustrating for patients who have been watching the deterioration of our healthcare system continue for the last, you know, couple of years and are wondering, you know, when does change actually occur? And so there's good news and bad news. The, the good news is, is that premiers across our 13 jurisdictions are reaching a point where they are trying different things. 
you know, they are trying different approaches to fixing this problem. The, the bad news is it's going to take a while for things to actually get better. So we are likely to see a repeat of what happened last year with emergency rooms. And until we fix our crisis in other parts of healthcare, like primary care, emergency rooms will continue to be overwhelmed for the foreseeable future. But the, the good news is, is we, we are making progress. I do feel like over the last 12 months, we have moved the dial on a few things that are really important. Yeah, tell me about that, because when the Premier's meeting wound up, I gather the CMA was feeling moderately optimistic about what they had seen. Where do you see cause for optimism? It can be tough sometimes, I suppose, for those waiting uh, to see a doctor, waiting at an ER to see where the improvements have been made. What what matters to Canadians is the ability to access healthcare services. And until that's fixed, I, I don't think there's going to be any Canadian that accesses healthcare who's going to feel like we really turned the corner. Now, if you do zoom out from what happened last year, I mean, I, I inherited from Dr. Catherine Smart, my predecessor, you know, a call for crisis and a desire for additional resources. And, you know, we spent at the CMA a good portion of the first half of this year advocating for the federal government to invest in provincial and territorial systems. And, you know, we, we have seen that investment. It's the largest since 2000. You know, and if we look at history, that should spark a cycle of change. You know, we had a large investment. that's uh, a little bit less than this, but the second largest back in 2004. That led to accords between our first ministers in 2007 and the Wait Times Alliance that many people may remember. And the health system did get better at that point for a while. Now, the question is, is why did things get worse? It's because people got up and walked away from the table. And that's what we're really focused on in this latter half of the year moving into the end of my presidency and into Dr. Kathleen Ross uh, come August to, to just make sure we get that follow through now from the provinces and territories. People got to sit around the table and figure out these problems until they're solved. I know this, this predates your, your time as the head of the CMA, but not your, 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 your time as, as a physician. Uh, mm-hmm. wh- where did it fall apart? Where did, it, where did people start to walk away from this? Because it felt like we had made progress. I remember those accords. Uh, I remember they had the wait time alliance and so on. It felt like we were moving in the right direction. And all of a sudden, we weren't. And it feels like this has been time lost. In, in healthcare, because you don't see the problems unless you're in them, you know, patients tend not to think about healthcare access unless they absolutely need healthcare access. And, you know, providers tend not to speak up until it's pretty late in the cycle of of these problems just because we're so focused on patient care. And so it, it, there's always a lag time between as things get worse and as things get better. And so it, it was probably between 2012 and 2015 that you really started to see a lot of the provinces and territories start to create their own isolated siloed approaches to everything from health human resources to how to distribute care across their provinces. And, you know, when COVID hit and we had those pandemic waves, that really was a strong pressure test on a system that had already experienced quite a few years of neglect. And I, I think what we're seeing now is just the fruits of taking our eye off the ball. And that's the struggle with healthcare is you, you can't give up on it. You, you have to remain focused on improving it because if you stand still, you're actually sliding down from where you need to be. Are you still hearing the same thing from members? Are you still hearing about, you know, having to wait to take vacation, not being, you know, working these these incredibly long shifts, just the, you know, the the atmosphere or the culture within within the system right now is such that it's driving good people out still? You know, people are much more likely to speak up. I, I think it's pretty common now to see patients sharing their stories about their difficulty getting patient access, which I, I think is a big driving force to having political leaders change the way that they're approaching this problem. You're also hearing a lot of doctors get active in advocating for patient care and sharing 
you know, how disparate their environment is and, and what they actually see patients going through. And so I, I think part of it is people are speaking up more, but I do believe that things have actually gotten worse this summer. Now, we are in the space where we might start to turn a corner. We, we have made some progress, not just with funding, but there's been changes in how the provinces are managing health human resources, things like credentialing. And we had the Atlantic Physician Registry created back in May of May 1st, so people can now move around and help each other out in that region of the country. You know, if we start to see more of these things, I, I think we are on a trajectory where things will get better, but it, it will take a bit before that happens. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes when Canadians look at, uh, and, and you've said this in other interviews in the past, when Canadians look at the healthcare system, they don't really care about jurisdiction, right? They don't really care about who's spending what where. They want to see services, as you mentioned. Um, now, you you were talking about needing the feds to pour more money into the system. They've done that. Uh, I suppose at this point now, we want to make sure the provinces put it in the right place to make sure that that access is, in fact, uh, coming true with the money that's being spent. In in the past, like you mentioned at the, the beginning, you know, there, there weren't mechanisms in place for us to track where this funding went. You know, for the most part, money was given and then there was trust that things would get better. And then there was just a general sense of whether or not things got better or worse. You know, I think Canadians expect something different. These benchmarks and metrics that the provinces and territories would be coming out with uh, in the coming months, I expect probably in the fall or winter, are going to be really important to communicate to Canadians what actually gets, gets spent in healthcare spending. And I, I think another thing for Canadians to appreciate is that if you value care, you have to appreciate that it actually does cost money. You know, this this amount of, of money from the feds is enough to spark a change. I think is enough to bring provinces and territories together. But when you're in the midst of a crisis, that's actually when you need more resources. When you stabilize things, you can start to think about cost cutting. I, I don't think that should actually be on the agenda right now. Yeah, one 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 thinks that this is not the time to be talking. I mean, you're right. A public health care system, we've seen it with the NHS in the UK, we've seen it with others. All public health care systems are struggling right now with this combination of an aging population, uh, post the post-pandemic hangover, or at least, you know, the, what the pandemic did to the system, generally difficulty in retaining and recruiting and all those things. I mean, there, it, it, we're not alone. Uh, at the same time, that's no, that's cold comfort, right, to, uh, yeah. to, to, to a lot of people, right? I, but are you seeing positive signs, do you think, from, I mean, there's been so much wrangling over money, or there was, you know, up until recently. Are, are you seeing the right tone from everybody, you think? You know, if I was con- to compare this to a crisis that I'd manage in my day job as an anesthesiologist, I, I, I'd actually say that the, the system is at a place where we're currently running the crisis, and we have a good chance of actually getting things stabilized. You know, and it's, it's important just to remember that we are still in that position. Healthcare is tough when it gets covered uh, just in the media and in discussions, because once again, people don't see the problem unless they absolutely need it at the time. And so if we continue on the path that we're on right now, I do believe that things will be stabilized. You're going to start seeing changes that haven't happened in the healthcare system for the last 20 years that will finally start happening. Changes in how we recognize credentialing across the country, with healthcare professionals across jurisdictions, tighter coordination. You know, if you receive care in BC, you know, a neighboring province, I, I live in a border town. There should be no reason why I can't receive your information in Alberta. So you don't have to repeat the same things over and over again, including tests. And then changes in team-based care. You, you hear a willingness among physicians and I think among providers across the country in other fields to, to work together because we, we have to take the burden off the shoulders of patients to navigate a system that's increasingly complex. We, we should help them along their way. 
Well, great to have you here on this Tuesday night. Dr. Alika Lafontaine is with us. He's president of the Canadian Medical Association, has been since last August 21st. His one-year term is coming coming near to a close, almost. almost. Uh, uh, Dr. Lafontaine, we always ask these questions of people who find themselves in these big positions. Uh, what's been the most unexpected part of it for you? What's really stood out, something that you didn't know as a practicing physician that you've learned in this role? Yeah, I'd say that the, the, the part of the experience that that's, really changed my view of the system is, is just how many people are actually trying to solve these problems. You know, there are literally thousands of folks across the country who are really trying hard to provide better patient access and healthier working environments. And, you know, what they really needed over the last year was to hear a different story, you know, uh, hear that we could do more than just cost cutting and, you know, focus on increased patient volume, but get back to the things that made medicine wonderful to practice again and receive care again, you know, connecting with your doctor, having as a patient time and space to actually share things about your personal life, get to know people again. You know, one thing about uh, healthcare that that's more true than ever, healthcare is not Uber. You know, it's not an <laughs> opportunity to just connect with someone as, as ships passing each other in the night. It's People want to have connection in healthcare, and there's thousands of people across the country working really hard to make that happen. Yeah, sometimes it's easy to overlook all the successes that exist within our healthcare system as well. We focus often on the negative, of which there are things to focus on, but there are there are many people who go and, and get treatment and go home happy, and, and we don't talk about that enough, do we? No, I, I don't think we do, and it it's tough, I know, as a patient. You know, you, you're trying to get attention for what truly is life-saving or life-changing access. And the way that you get attention nowadays, especially on social media, is by you know, presenting things in the most extreme and sometimes abrasive way as possible. But the truth is polarization never leads to change. It might lead to attention, but the change happens when people kind of settle down and try and figure things out, seeing each other as people. Is is that some of what worries you looking ahead to a time when you're back back in Grand Prairie? I know you're still involved in many other things other than just your day-to-day, uh, but just some of the polarization that we've seen, some of the attacks on, on medical doctors and so on on the medical profession across the country? You know, I, I think people come from a place that they believe is it makes sense. You know, when, when a patient's yelling at a doctor, what's going through their mind, either they're trying to express the pain that they're going through or they're trying to advocate for themselves or someone that they love. You know, and I think as physicians, continuing to remember that as we move forward with patient care is something that's increasingly tough as that becomes more common. But also as physicians, just realizing sometimes people are in a lot of pain and we're the only ones who can help them out of it. And so I, I do worry about it, but there there comes a point in every crisis that we have no option but to turn to each other because that's all that's left at the end. And so I, I have confidence that, that we're, we're reaching that point. And I, I think Canadians and, and the healthcare system are going to turn to each other again to solve this problem. What about a bit of the vein of sort of the anti-science vein that we've seen of late where, I mean, you know, specifically during the pandemic, and that was a very charged uh, political time as well, where doctors sort of found themselves the target of, of not just angry patients, but angry people? You know, I, I have friends who don't believe in the vaccine and, you know, have, have felt quite harmed from what happened over the last few years. I, I think what's really been uh, revealing about the whole thing is that, you know, at, at the end of the day, you can cut each other's lawns, but still disagree on, you know, specifics around, you know, different types of medical practices. And, you know, it's in that space that you care for each other, that you start to have real conversations. You know, I I personally believe in vaccination. I do think that there were a lot of missteps in communication during the pandemic waves. I think we continue to have some miscommunication, you know, the the long COVID issue that was spoken about earlier, I, I think is something that we continue to miscommunicate to patients just to help them understand the gravity of it. But at the end of the day, if we can find our way to just see each other as, as 
people again. I, I think we'll get past that misinformation and you know turn to a place where we can we can get somewhere better. But yeah, it's an ongoing frustration just to see all the misinformation out there and just how much it's taken root in healthcare. Right. But I suppose turning down the volume a bit would help, right? I mean, just making sure that we're all, especially in, in your shoes, that, that uh, there's still open lines of communication so people can express. Sometimes it's born of fear, right? Sometimes it's born of, fear, of, of pure fear. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes we don't realize we're actually yelling at the wrong person. You know, when right. someone comes into the OR and they're upset about care that they received in an emergency room or are not being able to get access to a family doctor like more than 6 million Canadians, I, I it, it's it's easy to think that yelling at me is going to change things, you know, but in reality, we, we have to share our stories with the right people. And I think that that's been something that I've been quite proud of over the last year, that patients and providers have come together sharing their stories with politicians. And I think that's really why you're starting to see changes in the approach of premiers and, you know, the federal government when it comes to how to fund and design healthcare systems in the country. What about you? What will you be doing come uh, late August? Are you going to put your feet up for a while and, and take a bit of a rest? You know, I, I'm going to take off a couple of weeks. I'm already on the schedule to come back into the OR. Uh, as you probably know, anesthesia of course. is uh, a yeah. specialty that's, that's quite a bit of shortage, so my department's really excited to have me back. Uh, I, I think I am going to take a little bit of a break from, you know, uh, healthcare leadership, spend some time with the kids and, you know, play some basketball in the backyard. But I, I am excited to continue to watch the change happen and, and see the person coming next, Dr. Kathleen Ross, uh, kind of take the reins and, and follow through on a lot of the things that we started this year. Well, Dr. Lafontaine, always a pleasure to have you on. Good luck. Good luck with uh, with putting your feet up a bit and getting back to, uh, to the day-to-day. Thanks for having me. The Canadian Associations of Physicians for the Environment today says a nine-year-old BC boy who died from asthma exacerbated by wildfire smoke is the face of the climate crisis in this country. Carter Vi was from 100 Mile House and died in hospital. The association's president, Dr. Melissa Lamb, says his death really underscores the urgent need to better protect vulnerable people from the effects of wildfires and other climate change-driven emergencies. What Carter's story tells me is that we are woefully unprepared for the health impacts of climate change as a society and as a healthcare system. And it's a moral imperative for governments to end our dependence on fossil fuels before more kids like Carter die. The BC coroner's office says smoke from wildfires is especially dangerous for kids, older people, and those with pre-existing heart and lung conditions. And the heat and smoke is adding to what is already another very difficult summer out there. Um, Heat waves, I'm sure you've seen the stories about the heat waves all over the world right now. Uh, They've intensified across southern and eastern Europe, Asia, much of the U.S. On Tuesday, the World Meteorological Meteorological Organization warned of an increased risk of deaths due to extreme weather in those parts of the world. That heat wave in southern Europe is nearing its peak, fueling widespread temperatures in the high 30s and 40s across Spain, Italy and Greece. China and other parts of Asia have been baking for weeks on end. So I think this is a glimpse of, of what we can expect far more of in the future, um, not just through El Nino, but obviously in the longer terms with, with climate change as well. That's Laura Patterson of the World Meteorological Organization. Across the U.S., Americans have been grappling with a medley of extreme weather from heat to wildfire smoke again. And flood warnings around 63 million people in the states are under heat alerts from Southern California to Miami tonight. Imagine this, the southwestern city of Phoenix. I'm sure some of you have been there. On Tuesday, again today, exceeded 110 Fahrenheit, 43 Celsius for the 19th day in a row. The 19th day in a row, it's been up above 110, breaking its all-time record of 18 straight days. 
if you ever like stood next to an oven while you're baking something, it's like that, but like it's coming from every direction and you can't escape it. Every direction and you can't escape it. Well, that causes, you know, we often talk about the dangers of extreme weather when it comes to flooding or any number of things, right? But heat Heat is potentially the most dangerous. Uh, Christy Eby is a professor of environmental and occupational health at the University of Washington, and she joins me now. Christy, thank you so much. Thank you for covering the story. Uh, this, you know, as I was saying, we often think of the day like we saw the images out of uh, out of northern New York State and Vermont last week, and just the the sheer terror of flooding. Uh, what what happens when wildfires get out of control and tear through residential areas? But heat. Heat is one of those ones. I mean, we know how dangerous it is, but this has been another reminder of, of just what kind of impact high heat can have, especially if it endures. Absolutely. Heat is a silent killer. No one needs to die in a heat wave, but far too many people do. Why is that? I mean, I, I think we, we understand um, we understand what the impacts of high heat can be. We, we, we feel it, obviously. I mean, those of us who live in colder climates understand what, what deep freeze can feel like. Why is it that we can be a little uh, less aware of, of high heat? We have a variety of mechanisms, behavioral mechanisms and physiological mechanisms to try and keep our core body temperature within a pretty narrow range to protect our cells and our organs. But the messages that we receive physiologically about heat and the extent to which we're getting into trouble with the heat are not as clear as other kinds of signals. It's often that people are outside enjoying the weather not realizing they're becoming dehydrated, not realizing they're feeling heat stress until sometimes it's too late. Yeah, I mean, I spent time in a lot of warm, very, very, very warm places. Um, and you do really have to watch out because you can be fooled into into not drinking or to feeling like the fact that you're not sweating anymore is in fact because you're not warm. But uh, there are some real things to watch out for. Uh, what kind of reminder do you think these heat waves are? Because, of course, they're coming in the middle of the summer. People always point out that, of course, it's hot in Phoenix in July, right? But this is something, this is something different. This is something different. Temperatures are increasing worldwide, and with that, an increase in the frequency, intensity, and duration of heat waves. And people do think, well, it was hot a few years ago, so it's hot now. I was fine then. I'll be fine again this year. Not really remembering that the temperatures were not so hot or not for so long or that nighttime temperatures were really high right now in many parts of the world. And that compounds the risks of heat, puts vulnerable people in very risky situations. Yeah, I think we both would remember the heat dome. I, I suspect you probably remember it well as well. For people who are in BC or western parts of Alberta or in on the Pacific Northwest as well would remember the heat dome a few years back. What is it with the duration? Why is it that the duration makes such a difference and those nighttime temperatures? I know that sounds odd because we always think of high noon as being the time that really takes its toll. But in fact, it's when it's hot at night that it tends to have that real prolonged effect on us. Those are very good questions, and I would like to start with the hottest part of the day is not necessarily at noon. We've all had many years of education around protecting ourselves from UV radiation, and so we know not to be out 
out in the sun from 10 to 12. But that doesn't correlate with the highest temperatures. In the Pacific Northwest, the highest temperatures are four or five in the afternoon. And going on to some of the other questions you asked is when temperatures are high, as I said, we've got a variety of mechanisms, behavioral, physiological mechanisms to try and cool ourselves down. And we know from a number of heat waves that mortality starts rising in about 24 hours. And that means as people go about their day in these high temperatures, they go through different environments, they go and try and cool down. But our core body temperature is slowly accumulating higher temperatures. And at some point, those higher temperatures become too much for our cells and our organs. Typically during the summer, it may be hot during the day, but it's cooler at night. And those cool temperatures at night help get that core body temperature back down to normal. And if that doesn't work, then you just slowly accumulate this heat until at some point your heart muscles begin to be affected. We know that about half of all the excess deaths in the heat wave are from cardiovascular causes. Somebody, for example, who had a heart attack who would not have had a heart attack otherwise. And the accumulation of heat over several days with high nighttime temperatures is particularly dangerous for vulnerable groups. And we also see how this impacts different groups differently, right? I mean, clearly one of the things, again, living out on the Pacific Northwest, one of the things that is not particularly common, I don't know what it's like in Washington State, uh, but in BC, uh, air conditioning is not particularly common, principally because it was never really needed. It never got that hot. But now, I mean, certainly the examples of places like Phoenix and Miami and, you know, uh, Beijing, for instance, this week and, you know, parts of southern Spain, I mean, those are those are excessively hot temperatures. Uh, but it's a reminder here as well that that we're not really we're not really all that well prepared for high heat in this part of the world or in many parts of North America. That's absolutely true. And it's important to recognize that there's ways to keep ourselves cool without using air conditioning. If people spend all of their days and all of their nights in air conditioning, they don't have a chance to become acclimatized to higher temperatures. So it is important to try and make some adjustments to be able to help your body get used to somewhat warmer temperatures. Because as the climate continues to change, summers in the future are going to be much hotter than they are today. Yeah, we're seeing the impacts of, a, of an El Nino as well at this point in time, exacerbating what is already out there. But true, I, I imagine we're, I mean, just about anyone you hear these days, uh, I mean, you, you always want to be cautious because people tend to get their back up when you point to certain weather phenomenon and talk extensively about, you know, the impacts of climate and so on, of climate change. Uh, but in this case, it feels it feels like this has been one of those summers already, and we've certainly seen it with the wildfires here in Canada, that this has been one of those summers that's, that should really be a wake-up call, regardless of what your politics Absolutely. The weather doesn't care what people believe. The weather is going to continue to change as humans continue to put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and as we collectively make choices on our investments in strengthening our health systems and making sure that we're prepared, that we have the methods, the tools, we have the early warning systems, the educational programs, so that people can be better prepared for the heat 
and are ready to take action when they need to, to protect themselves, their family, their friends, their colleagues. Christy Eby is with us this half hour, professor of environmental and occupational health, occupational health rather, at the University of Washington. We're talking about this high heat we've been seeing. Some of the temperatures have been absolutely staggering. It was record setting in Rome today, up around 43 degrees, same in Catalonia, where Barcelona is, up around 43, 44. And temperatures in the Middle East have reached, uh, you know, levels that are considered to be almost unlivable at this point. That's always been one of the conversations that's been had over the past little while is at places that can, uh, where it's already hotter, just going to get hotter to the point where it may become untenable. Um, Kirsty, just for the rest of us, how, how can we, I mean, obviously, when we look at such broad, you know, planet-wide issues as climate change and so on, these aren't going to be solved anytime soon, or at least not overnight. What should we be doing in the meantime to try to at least, and, and you know, you're right, it, it might be cooler next summer and we'll all stop talking about this again. But in the meantime, one has to prepare for it being hot and these extreme heat waves coming at us more frequently than, than before. What should we be doing then within our own lives and within our own cities, for instance, to try to mitigate some of the impacts of this? Because it feels like the things we could be doing. There's quite a range of effective activities. At the individual level, understanding your risk, understanding if you are at higher risk, and look at the ways that one can cool oneself down without using, for example, air conditioning. Sitting in front of an electric fan and spraying some water on yourself can really make you feel a lot cooler and can bring down that core body temperature making sure that you drink enough water, that if you are outdoors, you take breaks, you find shady places, and pay attention to how you feel. And if you start feeling somewhat unwell, make sure that you take that break and drink that water. At the city level, heat wave early warning systems save lives. Many cities have implemented these, but many more still need to. They're not difficult, they're expensive, they're operational. It requires collaboration across a whole range of services, not just health and meteorological services, but healthcare, the police, the fire department, emergency management. Make sure that you've got a collaborative system so that when very high temperatures arise, everyone's prepared. You have those cooling shelters set up. People know how to get there. You've got the plans in place for the kinds of temperatures that we've been seeing. As you mentioned, the heat dome was pretty extreme and other kinds of high temperature situations. And then in the longer run for communities to think about what kind of building regulations are you going to have knowing that our future is going to be hotter? Are you going to think about planting more trees in places that don't have enough to help mitigate the urban heat island? Using green roofs or painting roofs white, thinking about the orientation of buildings so that you can get breezes to flow through when you've got the windows open. So there's lots that can be done over the short, medium, and longer term to make us better prepared for the higher temperatures that are in our future. And I suppose checking on people as well. I mean, I think what we found during the heat dome in British Columbia, at least, is that, you know, the vast majority of those who were found to have died, I believe, was more than 600 were people who had pre-existing medical conditions, often older, often, um, you know, often poorer, you know, living in, in conditions that where the, where the heat was simply exacerbated and they had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to no way of getting out, really. 
No, absolutely. That it is important that this be not just at the individual level, but our family, our friends, our colleagues, check in on each other, make sure everybody's doing okay, that people are taking appropriate action, that they're keeping the windows open if they've got a good breeze that goes through, make sure that they can cool down at night, have plenty of liquids. And having someone else check, particularly older adults, a natural part of the aging process is people tend to become less aware of when they're getting into trouble with the heat. So having somebody check in on them can make all of the difference. Well, Christy Eby, thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, and thank you for covering this important problem. They'll be drowning their sorrows in um, at least Commonwealth Games organizers will be in Australia tonight. Uh, The state of Victoria has withdrawn its bid or its contract to host the 2026 Commonwealth Games because of massive increases in the projected cost of staging the event. Uh, The Premier of the state, Danielle Andrews, said on Tuesday that his government last year agreed to host the next edition, but not at any cost. He says they originally budgeted $2.3 billion Canadian to stage the games in five regional cities. That's now as high as 6.2. Here's what he had to say. Six to seven billion dollars is well and truly too much for a 12-day sporting event. Uh, I will not take money out of hospitals and schools. Yeah, uh, that was the that was the reasons given. Organizers found out just before the announcement was actually made, they were none too pleased and left them having they're going to have to find another host uh, in Australia, I guess. But that seems unlikely at this point. It is a comprehensive letdown for the athletes the excited host communities. The stated cost overruns, in our opinion, are a gross exaggeration. Yeah, that was Craig Phillips, the Commonwealth Games uh, of Australia CEO there, reacting to it. And it was a huge story. Now, the Commonwealth Games is an interesting one because, of course, growing up, I remember the Commonwealth Games in 78 in Edmonton, obviously, and then the 1994 Games in Victoria. That's the last time we've hosted them. Uh, The first Empire Games, as they were called back then, were hosted in Hamilton, Ontario, back in 1930, by the way. And so next, uh, the next ones in 2030, it's the centenary. And I think Canada's looking for a bid. Hamilton uh, wasn't going to get any money from the province of Ontario, so they didn't. Alberta is our potential host this time around. Uh, that may face a lot of hurdles. But this is not the first time that the Commonwealth Games has run into problems with hosting issues. Uh, back in 2022, the Games, of course, moved to Birmingham in England after uh, the Federation pulled the plug on Durban in South Africa. Africa because of financial issues. In fact, if you look at who's hosted the games over the century, uh, in all but the 2010 games uh, in Delhi have been hosted in either the UK or Australia since the turn of uh, since the 2000s, right? Uh, again, we hosted them on four occasions, last time in Victoria. So I was really wondering, is this a knockout punch for the Commonwealth Games? Is this it? Because they're struggling to find anyone to host them. Obviously, prices of hosting these sorts of events have gone way up. And a lot of people are doing the calculations and saying it's just not worth it. Uh, Sherry Brandish is director of the Future of Sport Lab and Sport Initiative at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, and she joins me now. Uh, Sherry, thank you. No problem. Thank you. I mean, this came as a bit of a surprise. I mean, I guess the Commonwealth Games, and I've, I've you know, I've covered the Commonwealth Games in the past. It can be, it can be a fraught one when it comes to hosting. But this was a bit of, su- of a surprise with the state of Victoria suddenly pulling the plug, you know, uh, less than three years away from actually hosting the games. Yeah, you know, I think that definitely we could argue it was a surprise, probably for those uh, who've been 
at the center of it all. But I think if uh, just analyzing and, you know, being familiar with uh, major games hosting, there are some circles who thinks it's not a surprise. And that those are those who are related to major games hosting and know in general, uh, the appetite for those is, is not rich in many places. And then we know the Commonwealth Games, you know, even just the Hamilton bid uh, made the decision um, that, it, you know, this wasn't the, the best place or it wasn't going to get funded. So we know that the Commonwealth Games um, have also had its fair share of exploration in terms of is this a viable economic venture at this time for the communities to which they um, that, that might be thinking about hosting. Right. I mean, I guess in the case of, uh, of of the state of Victoria and Australia, I mean, there was some dispute today over the numbers, but they said essentially that the numbers had tripled. Right. I mean, the costs had gone yeah. up exponentially and they just couldn't justify uh, doing this when so much else, especially these days, so much else. I know. Needs looking after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think during these games and the lead up to them and the bidding and, you know, looking for investment for for local and regional communities, we always see very healthy economic impact numbers, et cetera, but it's always, you know, you never know how to quantify those, right? Sometimes they're more qualitative um, factors and indeed the costs to support these is escalating, escalating, escalating. So um, it's not entirely a surprise that they and other communities have stepped back a little bit or other governments have stepped back um, and stakeholders from um, the Commonwealth Games, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you've been involved in, in these sorts of massive projects. So at what point, I mean, with only three years to go, you kind of put the whole organizing committee in a bit of a bind. They were the only, you know, they were a unanimous choice. There was really no other option at the time for 2026. Um, clearly, that would have had, had to be taken into consideration. But but the idea that you'd pull the plug with three years to go, it is in some ways, I mean, you are leaving the games in the lurch. You are. Um, but I think, as I said, you know, there's a whole cadre of, critics and analysts who have been looking at the these games and the Olympic Games, probably most comparatively. And the price is really outstripping the value of hosting these events, in particular in this global economy that's very uncertain. And then, you know, uh, you know, the geopolitics of yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the geopolitics of it all. And then really the environmental factors of it all. So I I think we're going to see it tougher and tougher for these major games. Uh, you know, to be carted around the country in the way that they used to be. Um, And, you know, we know, again, that the Ontario government decided um, that they were not going to support Commonwealth Game Bids in in Hamilton, the GTA. And it's the same with the BC government not supporting 2030, that the costs of these are exponentially outstripping what are for governments in particular uh, really other pressing priorities. Right. And of course, Hamilton made would, would have been the obvious choice because it would have been, it's 100 years since the first uh, yes. Empire Games, so they were called back then, but they were hosted in Hamilton, so it would have made That's right. sense for the centenary to come to Hamilton. But as you pointed out, even that wasn't enough for the allure yeah. of spending all that money on these games. Yeah, and then the infrastructure that goes along with it. So it's complicated. Major games hosting is very complicated and even down in Canada, you look at, you know, the Canada games and I think rightly so, you know, the way everything's uh, facilitated these days may need a real refresh. And so I know that this is all just brand new, but it will be interesting to see how the Commonwealth Games thinks about um, coming out of this. And, you know, how do we think about the Commonwealth Games and, you know, the global sport ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I because you know, growing up in the '70s, and I remember you know the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, and you know, I have I have fond memories of the Commonwealth Games, but this feels like, I mean, with all the trouble they had 
in, in the previous games with with Durban having to pull out and then uh, Australia having to come in and, and take over. And then there was, you know, it, it, there's been some real problems in the last decade or so with the Commonwealth Games finding people willing to host. And it feels like if one of those games would go first, Commonwealth Games may be the first ones to, to sort of fold up the tent and say, that's that. I do some work major games and Olympic games, more on the partnership sponsorship side. But, um, you know, the other thing right now, obviously the whole notion of the Commonwealth and the history of it obviously is something to deconstruct and needs probably further examination too. Right. So um, it will be interesting. Uh, We know, you know, in Alberta, there is an effort uh, to do a major games related to Commonwealth games movement. So this will be interesting again to see, you know, how these factors and these key stakeholders respond to the economic times. Can you, I mean, it's been done in the past for other reasons, but can you in fact skip, skip a games and move right to, I mean, 2030 feels like it might be, although Alberta's bid, I mean, who knows what happens there, but uh, you know, the centenary and the hundred years in Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't hosted the Commonwealth games since 94 in Victoria. So it feels like Canada's ripe for a hosting of the Commonwealth games and may be able to, to pull it together. But could you skip, could you skip 26 altogether potentially and still survive? Uh, well, they have, you know, games have been skipped for a multitude of reasons, whether it was COVID or war-torn um, times, right, or et cetera. Right. So it has been skipped. I think at the heart of the decision-making should always be athlete-centeredness, right? So how does this affect the athletes? And so are they able to compete at the level of the Commonwealth Games? Um, and, and there are, you know, the Commonwealth Games are not the Olympics in the sense that there are other avenues and opportunities. I think that's probably what um, those affected or probably should be thinking about first and foremost, right? Because there are athletes who will not be able to compete if it's skipped, right? Moving down the line. So how does how does that played out? But it's definitely happened before. The games have skipped cycles and get back on cycle. And um, I'm sure the games organizers are nimble and quick and thinking of all kinds of options in front of them. Sherry Bradish is with us, Director of the Future of Sport Lab and Sport Initiative at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're talking about uh, the state of Victoria and Australia withdrawing its uh, its hosting of the 2026 Commonwealth Games, which was coming up in March of 2026. They're out. They said the costs had ballooned far too much and they couldn't justify the spending. And that leaves the games and alerts not the first time. Uh, the centenary coming up in 2030. Canada's looking at a bit as well because the first Empire Games were hosted in Hamilton. The impact on the athlete, Sherry, here, though, I mean, I always have memories of, of Canada competing and doing well at the Commonwealth Games and how it was kind of a training ground and, and the legacy even even of, the, even of the Pan Am Games in Toronto in 2015. I mean, these are training grounds for some of Canada's best athletes and it really was a good um, leg up for the Olympics. Yeah, it definitely was. I think it was an excellent training ground. I think as well, there have, you know, there's a number of other opportunities and avenues and the, the um, international sport federations obviously all have their own annual uh, competition. So I think it's, it's possible that all these athletes will of course be accommodated in their own way and be able to compete on the international scale, but it was, you know, the, the Commonwealth games and other games do allow nations who are hosting to accomplish other things. So they create a grassroots movement. There's often a legacy attached to it and then infrastructure, which is ultimately important. And that's the pressure point here, isn't it? Which is, the infrastructure costs to update and and um, and prepare a community for the the hosting is what's gotten so expensive. So there are ways, as we said earlier, that 
athletes will be accommodated and be able to compete at the international level. But the costs of these games have just gotten so exorbitant at times when the global economy is really challenged. Right. And just inflation and so on, the cost of labor, yes. I mean, everything is just way, way up there. And Australia, of course, very similar to Canada in that sense. Yeah. Building supplies, et cetera. So, you know, it, it's hard for a government to say uh, this is our priority when there's so many other competing priorities. So, as I said, you know, I think um, the movements should all be athlete centered. And so um, some some creative play and then really diving deep into individual uh, international federations will help them um, maintain their level of play at an international um, scale. I suppose it's not um, it's not necessarily surprising that something like the Commonwealth Games, those sort of minor, more minor games, I think, of the Pan Am Games or the Commonwealth Games, are the ones, the first ones to to run into this problem because people talk about it a lot when it comes to even major events like the World Cup or the Olympics about the cost of hosting and how few countries want to do it these days because it's just so expensive. And it feels like maybe the Commonwealth Games was going to be one of those events that was going to hit this wall before the other ones did. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting, right? Like unpacking all this, what it means for the other major games, for sure. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, it's happening in Australia, because Australia is well known to be a nation that very much embraces the support of uh, these sporting ventures. So, um, yeah, they're just, as about I to said, ho- they're just about to host the Women's World Cup of Soccer, yeah. right? which will be a huge event. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Um, I don't think it draws, we know that it doesn't draw the partners or the media or the attention of some of those other major, major events that were, you know, you just noted the Women's World Cup. So those are interesting. It's all interesting to unpack and understand how is this affecting, you know, the greater sport landscape and the greater sport business landscape. So, and, you know, and that sport is a business, right? And and, and that's got to be tied to some of these decisions as well. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, that that's what it boils down to, right? It has to be the legacy piece of it has always been played up. And I think if you live in a place, I mean, I'm in Victoria, where they hosted uh, the Commonwealth Games in 94. Edmonton obviously has its legacy. Toronto still has the legacy of the Pan Am Games. I grew up in Montreal, so we had the legacy of the Olympics. I don't know if we want to talk about that. Uh, but the legacy piece has been a hard sell, and it's getting a hard, to be a harder and harder sell, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think in general, you know, uh, major games... I mean, the sports system, we have many examples in Canada, how it's very challenged right now uh, from top to bottom, to bottom to top. So um, uh, I think um, this is just another area. And we've seen this with the Olympic movement over the last few cycles, which I always think is kind of the exemplar in some ways and not maybe how it's best done, but the biggest and the best in many eyes. And we know that major games are really challenged and very much um, criticized for their cost and time in, in communities and then on national governments. So this is just another example of that. Well, we'll see what happens with 2026. No one's running forward to host the games just yet, but it's early days. Uh, Sherry, thank you so uh, yeah. much. Oh, no problem. <laughs> Thanks. Good to talk. Bye, Ben. Well, the union represent. we found out late today, the union representing BC's port workers have rejected a mediator's tentative agreement that ended a strike uh, last week, strike action last week. You know, more than 7,000 uh, port workers were off for 13 days. There was lots of talk about the impact that it was having. Uh, the Labour Minister, Seamus O'Regan, 
uh, sort of threatened to, to do more, but stepped in. The mediator worked out something that looked viable to both sides. It included, um, you know, quite a significant raise. I think the when we finally saw the details, it was a compound wa- compounded wage in hike of 19.2% over four years, a signing bonus, increases to a retirement fund, and so on. But um, the Longshore Workers Union of Canada says, or said in a statement today, at least the president did, that they don't believe the deal can protect jobs now or into the future. And that was a big bone of contention as well, as uh, there is more and more automation planned, of course, report operations. So part of all this strike action was to try to protect jobs in the future, not just about wages and so on. But it certainly seems like a lot of money to leave on the table. Um, Also saying that the four-year agreement that they were looking at having to sign was far too long. So back on the picket lines, they went about uh, four hours ago. Now, the BC Maritime Employers Association is the employer in all this. They say that uh, ILWU Canada rejected the deal without sending it to a full membership vote. Uh, So there's already been a lot of reaction to this tonight. Uh, Chambers of Commerce all across the country are angry. Uh, The Premier of of Alberta, uh, Daniel Smith, has come out uh, uh, with, you know, come out and said this has to, you, you know, the government's going to have to put an end to this now because the economic impact is so severe. Uh, joining us now is Mark Thompson. He's a labor relations professor at the University of British Columbia. Mark, thanks for your time. Good evening. So just when we thought this was all said and done, I was well, Friday night, we were talking about how it sort of come to a relatively, relatively peaceful end. Uh, here we are again. It's Tuesday and uh, the strike's on. What's happened? Well, it's a little hard to know. It's, it's, not unheard of for a uh, an agreement presented to uh, union members uh, for their ratification to fail. Now, in the case of the ILWU, they have a uh, they have a caucus, and I'm not familiar with how it's composed, but that's obviously a legislative body uh, within the union, and they uh, they rejected the settlement. It's kind of embarrassing for the uh, bargaining committee. So now they have to go back and address the concerns uh, expressed by uh, by the caucus representing the members uh, with the agreement that they thought they had. So uh, we'll we'll see how that works. Uh, I can say that preservation of jobs is an extremely important uh, value for this union. Other unions. Uh, when faced with technological change or other other changes, can work out a payout arrangement with the employer, and uh, so workers give up their jobs and have enough money to go buy a farm or start a business or do whatever. But in this case, uh, the union operates on a dispatch basis. In other words, when a ship comes in. Uh, the uh, stevedoring company asks for a certain number of workers, and uh, the union supplies them. And they may only be three days. In fact, that's a fairly typical assignment. And then the workers go back into the pool, and they may never deal with that company again and probably never deal with a ship again. So the uh, – and that works that, – that's very efficient. In other words, the union – takes care of the human resources functions uh, normally uh, attached to an employer. But with the dispatch system, if they lose jobs, that means that the the total pool of jobs is reduced for everybody. 
You can't just say, well, here, worker A, B, and C, you get a bunch of money and go away. It doesn't work that way because A, B, and C are only a small number, and the, all the others are losers. So it's a, a little bit of an unusual situation compared to other work settings. And uh, they've been dealing with technological change for 60 years. And I can tell you, if you go to the docks now, you don't see very many people. No. You see a lot of containers. You see a lot of computers. You see cranes, but you don't see many people. So the notion that uh, they have never uh, agreed to a reduction in the number of workers is simply not true. But they they have to work out, work out how this will uh, go in the future. Right. Uh, I mean, the offer on the table, I mean, if you, with that explanation, it certainly makes more sense than if, for instance, this was a public sector uh, situation, right? Uh, but the, the offer on the table, at least financially, seemed pretty good. It feels like they're, you know, most people would look at that kind of wage increase knowing how much money uh, they make generally and, and, and think, wow, why would you leave that behind? But if you explain around the job thing, although from the outsider's point of view, it feels a bit like, you know, you're a member of the, you know, of the international, um, you know, horseshoers, you know, horseshoe fabricators association as well if you're trying to fight this kind of automation because of course we know the port of vancouver has been uh, ranked uh, very low in terms of its efficiency so obviously the move towards automation is happening at other ports around the world it feels like a bit of an unstoppable force regardless of what the union has to say about it well i mean it it i wouldn't know that it's i guess maybe it's not unstoppable but it's certainly been going on uh and uh, you know there's a system a payout for workers who basically want to give up their jobs early, and it's called the M&M system, and that's modernization and mechanization. That goes back to the 1960s. Well, that's how long they've been dealing with this. Uh, And I know there's an argument as to how, as to why the uh, uh, port is is not more efficient, but nobody claims that the stevedores are causing the problem. Uh, so uh, they, uh, you know, this this will end somehow, but uh, clearly the members don't feel that the protection for their for the pool of jobs that uh, now exist and that will exist in the future are adequately protected. And there are various ways of dealing with that. As I say, the M M&M and M agreement was signed. Uh, before most of your listeners were born, I think. Yeah, and, well, uh, you know, <laughs> not, worked, but yeah, it's, it, it goes back. Well, yeah. you know? You're right. I, I mean, you know that you you know how this would work. Then, how, in that case, then how would it? How would the mediator present something that didn't address such which such a clearly important concern uh, to the union, uh, and then expect it to go through? I guess this wasn't. We didn't really know the details of what the agreement was on Friday night, so I suppose we wouldn't have known that this wasn't included. But they've looked at this and felt that it simply wasn't enough. It, it seems odd that that wouldn't have been front and center when the mediator was uh, was addressing concerns of both sides. Well, you're correct in saying you know, that we don't know what was going on and what considerations the mediator had, but yes, I can... Uh, I, I was surprised when I heard of the terms. I wasn't particularly surprised by the money. Uh, the American branch of that union settled for even more money a few weeks ago. Uh, I mean, given how profitable these shipping companies are and the 
conditions under which they uh, work and have worked uh, and the dispatch system, uh, I mean, you know, they're entitled uh, to a generous increase. And the, and the offer that the employers put out initially was never going to fly. I was I knew that contracting out was a concern. The union had made that very clear, and I was surprised that there was not some mention made of that. So, uh, you know, uh, the saying goes, unless you walk in the other person's moccasins, you don't really know where he's going. And yeah. that's kind of how we feel about what the mediator did. And so now he's got a little different set of marching orders, and uh, I'm sure that the minister is pressing the parties to uh, reach an agreement. And uh, so we'll have to see how successful they are. Mark Thompson is a labor relations professor at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the fact that uh, striking, uh, well, port workers, some 7,400 of them right across British Columbia, affecting 30 ports, the Port of Vancouver being the main one, are back out on strike. You may have heard that uh, late last week there was seemed to be a tentative deal reached, but the union has rejected it, and uh, back out on strike they go. Uh, so activity at the port will have come to a halt once again. They hit the picket lines oh, about four hours ago, more or less. Um, Mark, when you look at what lies ahead, I mean, there's been some pretty pretty heated words on social media tonight from both uh, the Premier of Alberta, Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan, uh, basically saying uh, that it is now time to provide certainty and stop this new disruption immediately. Um, is back-to-work legislation, I mean, that seemed to be sort of the underlying part of, uh, of Seamus O'Regan's uh, move last week was this would be next. Is that, do you think that's imminent or are they, are they going to try and see if they can't settle this uh, somewhat amicably? Well, historically, uh, there were frequent strikes in the port of Vancouver. And uh, the pattern was that a strike would be called, and immediately the uh, grain farmers and the prairies would set their hair on fire. Hell has no fury like a grain farmer who sees their... um, product uh, piling up in the uh, elevators and uh, so parliament would uh, uh, legislate them back to work well parties they figured this out so uh, this system fed on itself why would they go the last mile if you will uh, in bargaining when they might do better with the parliament so they would hold back uh, their bargaining and so the government in uh, in the 90s got tired of this. Uh, both parties, all the parliamentarians, got tired of being called back to Ottawa to deal with a, you know, a strike involving 7,000 people. And so they decreed, uh, changed the law, so that the grain keeps getting shipped. So grain farmers, they're happy, uh, but everybody else is unhappy. So uh, the federal government takes the long view of these things. So they know if they uh, legislate an end to the strike on some terms or another, uh, that temptation is going to be that next time around, and there are several unions in the port, uh, there'll be another dispute, and there'll be an expectation that Parliament is going to act. And uh, just think... uh, how much better the offer that the employers accepted from the mediator was than their initial offer. And that the initial offer is what 
uh, management groups, and the premier of Alberta, and what have you, if thought would be imposed. So the union says, geez, we, we did okay. Uh, and so it's the, uh, it's the bargaining kind of atrophies if the parties know that parliament is going to get them off the hook. And so, as I say, the federal government has been down that path uh, many times, and uh, they're, they're very reluctant. Moreover, as a matter of principle, the Trudeau government has said that they believe that the labor disputes are best solved by the parties at the bargaining table. And, you know, a few months ago, we had a big strike by the public sector, public service. Mm-hmm. And they were, well, we got to get them back to work. we got to get them back to work. And uh, the government uh, resisted. And after a relatively short time, the, uh, the dispute was settled. So, you know, they have a the principle that bargaining is worth preserving and the experience of what happens if you intervene frequently in bargaining and, and what happens in the future. So the employers groups, they want to legislate them back to work. They might tell the uh, uh, Maritime Employers Association to work harder at addressing the union concerns and there wouldn't be any need for back to work legislation. So I, I think uh, we don't, we never know uh, what's what's going on at the higher echelons of the federal government in these things. But the, uh, as I say, the impetus for for uh, legislation, it, it, you know, has to be measured against the experience. So everybody out there is an expert on industrial relations. You know, the premier of Alberta knows all about these things. Yeah, well, sudden experts, obviously, sudden experts. So So, uh, she'll tell us what to do. Uh, And the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, which is militantly anti-union, they know all about these things. So, uh, you know, as I say, the, the job of the federal minister and his staff is to uh, look at the, at the longer uh, picture here right. and to see what's going to be best for the overall piece uh, for labor in this port. Given how you've described what the work uh, situation is like at the port for this union in particular, how much do they care about public opinion? Because I get the sense that when people see the, the, the money on the table, most people are going to be like, that's a, that's a great raise. Take it, take it and, you know, take it and walk away. I don't know if public support union, I don't know if public uh, opinion is going to be on their side uh, going well, forward in this one. I don't know where it was before. Does it matter? I've been looking at these things for about 60 years, and I don't remember when public opinion favored the strikers. Right. Maybe well, it sometimes happened. it does. You sometimes, know, you know well, well, they're making more money than I made, and uh, right. you don't know the circumstances. I mean, those gotcha. hourly rates are very generous. Let's, let's admit it. But they're only if you get called. And because you don't know if you're going to be called or not, you can't live in the far suburbs, so you got to live in Vancouver, where we know about the cost of living. And you may be ready to work and not get to work. Uh, so there's all kinds of circumstances uh, around that. Uh, but uh, we uh, readily ad- acknowledge that long- longshoremen uh, make good money. And uh, we also look at what they settled for in the U.S. And it was much more generous down there than anything that's on the table here. So public opinion, you know, parliamentarians listen. But uh, we don't expect uh, the business community to say uh, to the government, 
you know, it's the time for the strikers. Yeah, true they enough. sacrificed during the COVID. They've had to deal with inflation. Let's go with them. I've never heard that. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I suspect you, you, you'll never get very many phone calls from uh, business people saying, you know, I've thought about this. And probably, uh, you know, justice is on the side of the workers. People respond to what hurts them. Uh, you know, so if you have a business and you can't get parts or components because of the strike, you're going to be unhappy. That's that's human nature. Uh, we'd be shocked if they didn't. Uh, in this case, the, the strike was kind of looming for some time. Uh, if possible, uh, you know, uh, uh, businesses could have stockpiled some of the uh, goods that they receive from overseas and could have written this out. And maybe some of them Mark, are. I'm, They're never going to tell I'm, you that. Mark, I've run out of time. Thank you so much again. We'll see. The minister has a lot on his plate right now. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. We, I was asking you earlier, what beer was in your fridge when you were a kid? What was that, that beer that someone in your family, granddad, uncle, dad, mom, grandmother, aunt, uh, was loyal to? And we had a good one. And our dad built a cottage at the lake from scratch. I mean, scratch. Cleared the property by hand, chopped down some trees, built an outdoor outhouse from an old telephone booth and so on. We had a three-room bedroom cottage with a beautiful veranda. And what beer was in his fridge? Dad said as long as it was ice cold and wet, he didn't really care. But it was Old Vienna. There you go. They used to, as he points out, Old Vienna used to advertise during CFL telecasts, if you would recall, that far back. His favorite American beer was Miller Draft. He used to like to bring it, bring it back when uh, he would come across the border. I was asking you what beer was in your fridge when you were young. I remember at my mom's parents' place, my granddad had, uh, and my grandmother, um, had Old Vienna. That was the beer that was always in the fridge. So that always reminds me of back then. Sometimes on YouTube, you can look up the old commercials as well. And it's always uh, brings you back in time, you know, stubby bottles, strange clothing, funny haircuts, all those things, all those things from the 70s. Um, well, this brewery in, in uh, San Francisco has been around a lot longer than that. It was founded back in 1896. It's called Anchor Brewing Company. It is regarded as America's oldest craft brewery. It announced uh, last week that it would be shutting down for good. Uh, and that caused a huge sort of upswell of people wondering what happened. It had been bought by Sapporo USA, which is the American subsidiary of the massive Japanese beer maker Sapporo, of course, um, about seven years ago. It was supposed to be a savior for it. Instead, it looks like it's going to be done and dusted. Um, there are, since that came out, there are sort of people searching around. There have been reports of investors stepping forward to try to express interest in buying some or all of the uh, legendary Anchor Brewing Company. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, its struggles aren't unfamiliar to all of us. It was hit hard by the pandemic. It had to close its tap room. It wasn't necessarily nimble enough to move into those store sales in a big way. The brand has its legacy and its history, but it may have lost a bit of its luster with a younger crowd. Uh, they're going to continue pouring beer until the taps run dry later this month, apparently. But it comes as there are struggles in the beer market right across North America. They've gone a bit flat, right? Um, people are drinking different stuff. People are drinking less as well. So are we going to see a bit of a consolidation in what had been a pretty bubbly business for quite a long time so far in the 21st century. Joining me, joining me now is David Infante. He is a contributing editor and columnist for uh, Vine Pair, which is looks into the uh, alcohol industry in the U.S., and editor and publisher of the Fingers newsletter. David, thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. 
This has been a big one. This is something that, that you essentially, you broke this story. The Anchor Brewing uh, closing has been a, a story of, that's taken on proportions. I mean, I, I you know, I, I pay attention to the San Francisco Chronicle because we're just up the coast, more or less. But this has become a national story. What's going on for those who aren't entirely familiar with, with the brand name or the brewery? A lot's going on. Um, Anchor Brewing Company has been operating in one form or another since 1871 in San Francisco. Um, so it's 152 years old as a brewery, and then under the Anchor name is, is 127 years old. So we're talking about a very, very historic old American brewery, um, and it also has an outsized significance in the American craft brewing movement because it really helped to to get that whole thing going when Fritz Maytag took over the, the brewery in 1965. Since 2017, it's been owned by Sapporo USA, which is the Japanese sub- or the subsidiary of the Japanese conglomerate by the same name. They brew Sapporo uh, rice lager, which a lot of people are familiar with. Um, and just, uh, just six years, uh, into its ownership of the, of the, of the brewery of Anchor Brewery, um, Sapporo USA announced last week that it would be shutting down, um, Anchor Brewing effective almost immediately. They're selling off the rest of the beer. Um, they claim to have tried to find a buyer for over a year and haven't been able to. Um, and uh, understandably so, given the the historicity and the the cultural significance of Anchor Brewing Company to the city of San Francisco um, and the Bay Area and the American brewing industry, um, they're a lot upset about that. Yeah, it's remarkable because anchors survived, you know, the Great Earthquake in 1906, a couple of world wars, many ups and the Depression, a whole lot of economic ups and downs, and it couldn't survive six years of Sapporo. What went wrong? Yeah, you know, two world wars. It made through Prohibition, uh, the the earthquake, and and countless minor calamities along the way. It also scrapes by the skin of its teeth many times. Has been bought out of bankruptcy or kind of saved from insolvency. When Sapporo took it over in 2017, it was still a relatively healthy brewery. It certainly was not quite at its peak when it did about a hundred thousand barrels. Um, that was probably about you know five to ten years behind it, but it was still producing near abouts there and um, had a, a strong brand that people still you know really liked, even if they weren't buying the beer quite as regularly as they had in the past. And over the past, you know, six years, the intervening six years uh, under Sapporo's ownership, um, workers tell me it's just kind of been a tragic comedy of errors type of thing or where um, Sapporo has, you know, tried to implement things that they think would have moved the brand forward, but um, maybe actually had the the opposite of the intended effect and, and we're, we're hamstringing anchor, we're eroding some of the things, some of the aspects of the company and the brand that people liked the most. Um, you know, there was a bunch of missteps along the way that ultimately sort of uh, added up into a situation where it seems to have been a big mismatch between Sapporo USA's expectations for the company um, and really what this type of brewery could do um, in a, a challenging and competitive American market. Um, there's a place for a brewery like Anchor, a brewery that size that has deep connections to its you know local community or its regional community in the Bay Area and in California. But to have a national brewery that isn't being, you know, aggressively invested in and aggressively pushed in the right ways and, and you know, things aren't executing as, as well as they could be, um, that makes it a very challenging position for it to be in. And I think that's certainly the case with Anchor is that they 
there were a lot of missteps along the way with with Sapporo at the wheel, and that coupled with a challenging uh, a challenging marketplace for craft brewers generally, you know, spelled spelled trouble. Yeah, tell me a bit about that challenging aspect because I think we understand the bad marriage that existed there. Uh, but one would think that if everything were were great on the on the business side of things, and it, that this would have been okay. Is there something? Is is this have a broader uh, context here that that perhaps people should know about? I know tastes have changed a bit. Obviously, beer sales are down a bit. Anchor, you know, made the kind of beer that uh, you know they. I don't think they made a zero cal beer, right? I, I don't think. <laughs> right um, now, so you know the market's kind of shifting around a bit as well. All at the same time as this bad union between uh, Sapporo and Anchor was happening. I think that's broadly accurate. So you know, some of the things that we're watching here in the American market, we've sort of come off the uh, the sugar rush, so to speak, of the hard seltzer boom, which really hit in earnest in 2018 and 2019. And you know, notwithstanding the companies that made money on the hard seltzer boom, what hard seltzer showed us is that the American palate is swinging a little bit back towards uh, more commodity oriented. Um, flavored malt beverages, certainly more accessible flavors, aligns with their flavor expectations. It aligns with the price point they want to spend. Those are those are much different purchases than the ones that you know really drove craft brewing to its heights in the United States um, last decade. And I think that that's it's true that we're moving away from that right now. And you can see that in a bunch of different metrics. I mean, the growth in the industry in terms of, of dollar sales uh, is more or less flat. That volume is a little bit, you know, down year over year last year. I mean, these are small little wobbles, but it is not growing in the United States uh, to the tune of double digits percentage points. These are shifts. The market has gotten tighter. We were at about 9,700 craft breweries across the country here in the United States. There's more competition um, than ever, certainly. And it's not just about how many breweries there still are. It's also about how many more uh, spirits-based canned cocktails there are. It's, right. there, there's wine fruit punches and things like this. Consumers are being bombarded with all these exciting new things. And what we're seeing is that they're becoming omnibibulous, which they drink a little bit of everything rather than stick right. to just one thing. David Infante is a contributing editor and columnist for Vine Pair and editor and publisher of the Fingers newsletter. We're talking about uh, the imminent closure of Anchor Brewing in San Francisco, one of America's purported to be America's oldest craft brewery. And just what it says about, uh, I mean, there were some uh, individual issues going on there, but just what it says about the beer market in general, the craft beer market specifically. I mean, it feels like we've been in a real, you know, if you like beer, we've been in a real golden age of brewing uh, in this century so far uh, compared to say when I was growing up. Uh, but are, are we sort of, are we seeing that crest a little bit? Do you think we're going to see some consolidation within uh, within the markets and, and who's suffering? Because I gather it's kind of those in the middle, those who aren't big enough to compete with the majors and aren't small enough just to make do with their local community beer sales. Right. You are. Yeah. So there's really kind of some stratification going on in the American craft brewing market. And I think to some extent, um, you know, Canadian consumers and Canadian craft brewing uh, professionals will expect to see some of the same because these markets are at least related, if not, you know, one to one, exactly the same. You know, there's there's a world in which a small brewery that puts out 500 barrels, a thousand barrels of beer a year can serve its local community um, and sell sell beer at the tap room, sell beer, you know, to, to people who want to drink it there or want to carry it away in, in six packs or, or whatever, um, and make, still make a decent living. I mean, I think that there's, there's most of, uh, the 9,700 breweries in this country are producing 
a thousand barrels or less of beer, according to the Brewers Association. So that big, long tail of brewers, it's mostly what they do, right? They have relatively limited overhead. They employ three, four or five people, whatever. And and there's a way to, to make that work. If the beer is good and the community is behind you, you can continue to do that. I don't think that dream has really gone anywhere. And I don't think that is currently what's under threat. I think what you are seeing, Ben, is, is that um, and, and this has certainly been the case over the course of the past half decade and the pandemic kind of just supercharged it is once you look to move your beer through distribution channels here in the United States, you're looking at a totally different ball game, And it's a ball game that really, really favors economies of scale when you're trying to put six packs and 12 packs and, and uh, you know, larger packaging varieties into supermarkets across the country. That means you're going through a distributor, which means you're giving away margin. Um, it means you're competing much more directly with every other beer that's sold in that supermarket, right? And the, the big beer the aisle. Big where... ones, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's a ball game that is much more oriented around price and, and value proposition of the beer rather than anything that you might be able to sort of deliver at the tap room at the brewery in terms of like education around like, here's how we make this. Here's why we're you know good for the community. Here's what we, uh, uh, we do to give back, et cetera, et cetera. That all gets lost in the sauce or gets flattened. And what you wind up with is a beer wall that looks very similar, uh, you know, from one end to the other. And you're really, you know, you're, you're trying to attract a drinker who might otherwise pick up, a 12 pack of uh of Miller Lite or uh, uh yeah, Sierra Nevada or, Pale Ale or any of the number uh, any of the dozen yeah exactly and on, on sale right that's the that's the other thing is the price point exactly and so the the small if you're a mid-sized brewer that can't capture the economies of scale to produce a lot of beer uh at a volume that's going to allow you to to you know get better prices from your uh, suppliers for hops or for malt or for the fruit that you put in in uh, beer if it's a fruited beer right like if you're if you're not able to flex your muscle on your purveyors or your input providers um you're not going to be able to you're going to get flexed on when you wind up at retail and you're two dollars three dollars four dollars more expensive per 12 pack um than than the competition and so that's where you really see the guys in the middle getting squeezed you know from both directions because now they're they've made those capital investments they've made that you know those business model decisions to get to that point but without enough capital to keep growing and you know building that footprint up and you know achieving those bigger bigger economies of scale they're losing out to to bigger producers at at retail on the other side they're also losing out to all the the smaller breweries that stayed small and and you know built their sort of local community um and no longer buying these mid-sized guys because there's there's five local ones that they could go to instead well it's a tough business out there i, I always ask this one question uh, any sleepers out there this one beer that people might not have heard of that's uh, that you think is a, a piece of awesome Oh gosh, I'm seeing <laughs> way, way too many, right? Way too yeah, many. no. Well, so here's the thing is that like, I've been covering the beer business for about a dozen years at this yeah. point, And I always emphasize to people, I don't have a trained palate. I'm not a critic. I don't review beers. Um, yep. I read about the business, right? I drink a lot of beer. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but, um, but I always hate to, you know, people are always like, Oh, what's your favorite? And it's like, man, I don't know. The one that's like cold and in front of me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, David, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I got a real bargain on that tractor, Frank. I'm not so sure about that. What do you mean? Well, Tom, 
regardless of what you paid for it, I can show you where you could have saved a lot of money in the long run if you'd have bought a John Deere Model B seven years ago. And that doesn't take into consideration all the other operating advantages you could have enjoyed all these years. Ah, oh, you got to love the 50s, right? That's a vintage John Deere commercial. It's actually like a mini – it goes on forever. It's like 50, about eight minutes long. You can watch like he shows – Frank shows him how to – shows him the John Deere and how it works. And I mean it, it was like a little mini movie. It was uh, – you can tell by the music, right? Um, we were talking beer the last half hour and Roger in Calgary says Black Label was the beer that was uh, – that he reminded – that he was in his fridge when – in the fridge when he was growing up. Black Label, of course, was, uh, was a popular one as well. Let me no, one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight is the text line. What beer uh, was the one in your fridge when you were growing up? Uh, not necessarily yours, but the one that was kept uh, in your fridge. Uh, you know, there weren't that many beers back then, right? There were only a few that you could buy. So chances are most of us grew up with the same stuff in the fridge. Uh, yes, back to John Deere. That commercial from back in the 50s um, is an era that my next guest knows well. Now, he wasn't around then, but John Deere tractors have been one of his lifelong passions. Uh, Dave McEachran's Love of them began when he was just a boy growing up on a farm in southwestern Ontario, literally in diapers. Uh, but he sort of wound up buying toy tractors first. That was his first love. And then he would collect all kinds of memorabilia and articles and manuals and anything with that infamous John Deere logo on it, which is really one of the most recognizable brands out there. It doesn't matter if you grew up uh, on a farm or a long way from a farm like I did, you know what John Deere is. Um, so the 43-year-old wound up buying his first vintage John Deere tractor and he was just 18. It was a 1959 Model 430. And his collection has continued to grow ever since, not just the toys and the memorabilia, but the tractors themselves. He's not quite sure exactly how many he owns now. It's somewhere between 30 and 40, along with a whole collection of toys, as I was mentioning. So what better to do after a decade or decades of collecting something that's near and dear to you than to share it? So he's in the midst of building his own little John Deere museum on his property in Glencoe near London, Ontario. And I thought, what a cool story. We met someone last week who collected, had the Guinness World Record for collecting toothbrushes. Um, and I was saying at the time, it's not really about what you collect. It's the passion you have in collecting it and the joy that it brings you, the joy that you share with other people who collect something similar. Certainly that's the case here. And uh, he's always happy to share the history of one of North America's most iconic and recognized brands and also how important uh, John Deere and, you know, the, the John Deere himself, and then all the way through to the tractors, which he never lived to see, uh, but just how important they've been to agricultural history uh, in America as well, in North America, better yet. And Dave McEachran joins me now. Dave, thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me about this about this uh, love of John Deere. I gather it started, there's a great quote that you've given in other interviews, that it started when you were young, at that age where you just know what you want, what, you know what you like. Yeah. When I started collecting, I was 10, but way prior to that, I, I have a picture in somewhere in the files of me sitting on a John Deere pedal tractor, which is uh, kind of like a pedal car, but it looks more like a tractor and they're big, heavy, uh, well-built toys and common, uh, not, not uncommon out on in rural areas and on a farm, but I'm sitting on it in my diaper. So I can't even reach the pedals, but uh, you know, my dad was obviously excited to have a boy. I have two older sisters. So I was uh, a son born on a farm after two girls. So he was excited clearly. And, you know, probably uh, that was a, 
a Christmas gift and sitting there in my diapers on it, uh, it was definitely ahead of ahead of its time uh, for me to be using. But I had a big smile nonetheless as a little baby boy in diapers. Yeah, he put you on that John Deere quick. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was good. I had a little one too, actually, that I had that I loved when I was a kid. It was red, uh, oh, but okay. I used to drive it up and down the concrete in Montreal. So I don't think yeah. it was quite didn't have quite the uh, long term potential. <laughs> I don't right. Think. Uh, but you bought your first one. I mean, in your teenage years, you sort of turned this into something real. You, you, I gather you bought your first one when you were about 18. You worked in a John Deere dealership, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a progression. I mean, I started collecting just farm toys, so models of tractors. And uh, when I started doing that, I did honestly start with all different colors and makes of equipment. And I soon realized how big the hobby was and some of the history of just farm toys. And so I quickly, within a year or two, focused on just John Deere to keep it somewhat realistic or within reach. Uh, And I I mean, I'm still learning 30 some odd years later, collecting, still learning just how big and how many things are out there to be collected. But it went from farm toys to, oh, here's some needles, like sales brochures that showed these tractors, the toys that I'd collected, it shows them. Uh, being marketed and and shown to customers and how they how they did that and so it kind of led into some paper collecting and then you look to display some little pieces and parts amongst the toys that aren't toys so things like match covers or different types of memorabilia that uh, employees or farmers might have been given over the years and it just keeps bleeding into other areas and eventually bled into the area of real tractors and you know, as I as I became an older teenager, I thought, yeah, it'd be really cool to have um, an old John Deere two cylinder tractor. We didn't have old antique tractors on the farm. I grew right. up with tractors that were similar age to me, so to me, they weren't antiques, uh, as per you know, old two cylinder model of John Deere tractors are. And I always thought it'd be neat to do that. The old tractors that were like kicking around my grandfather's farm were red of original color mostly rusty as I remember them, but they were red when they were new. And because we'd farmed with John Deere during my lifetime, I uh, that was where my interest was. It wasn't in the old red ones uh, that my grandfather had owned. So we That's do right. still have the first tractor on the farm that my grandfather bought new in 1945. It's red. I restored it in 2002, but it has a special spot and uh, it, it is what it is. But my uh, my passion is for the green and yellow. Yeah, I, I forgot they weren't they weren't green. Uh, I mean, John Deere. Even if you're a you know, even if you're a city boy, everyone recognize it has to be one of the most recognizable trademarks sure. anywhere. Yes, it, and it is. It's an ex, for a outside of its own industry, it is one of the most recognized trademarks outside of agriculture. Um, you know, if you were to pull urban people who are not connected to the agricultural industry, they do recognize that trademark ahead of something like Caterpillar or International Harvester kind of right. thing. And maybe over some some other one, like, you know, car labels, you know, car marks right. even. Yeah, I mean, it's They're... really uh, in- instantly recognizable. The importance of of John Deere, period, I mean, and this, it goes into your family history. It goes into the history of how agriculture progressed in this in this country and elsewhere. I mean, mm-hmm. we should all be thankful in some way for the work of, of, of John Deere himself and then everyone who came after him. Yeah. And that's some people don't understand. John Deere isn't the name. It is the name of a business today, but it's it's not just a name of a business. It was actually a person, an individual. He was a blacksmith. He solved a problem 
kept modern agriculture. Um, it was going to potentially inhibit modern agriculture from developing in North America when the big move of folks, uh, you know, Eastern Europeans that came to the East Coast of North America and eventually in the mid 1800s really moved in masses to the Midwest to break open the prairies, if you would, they came upon a huge problem that they couldn't figure out how to turn the soil over. The implements they brought with them from the East just simply didn't work in the soil types of the Midwest. And it was him as a blacksmith who followed the, the dream to let's go break new ground. Um, he knew there was a need uh, for his trade being a blacksmith in the Midwest. And it was during those early days that he, he actually discovered uh, how to change that implement of turning the soil being the plow, how to change that so that it could be successful in turning the dark, sticky gumbo soil of the Midwest. And without that discovery, it may have happened eventually, but without that discovery, there were already people that were heading back east and thought the soil was poisoned and you could never grow anything on it because you can't plow it. And there were people moved from the east coast into the Midwest and turned around and went home. So yeah, he really, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting discovery and one that, uh, you know, the company based itself on for many years, and it still hasn't lost sight of that, what really started the uh, company, which was the creation of the steel plow. Right. We we recognize them, obviously, for their tractors. That's about 105 mm -hmm. years old, I guess. But you, you've collected yeah. a whole bunch of them. I gather a lot of them are from that same. The first one you bought, I gather, was a Model 430 from back in the late 50s. But that's really the era you focused on, right? Is that that's is right. those ones? That's right. I have a little bit bleed into the 1960s, but for the most part, I really try and focused on that 55 to 1955 to 60 era. What is it about those ones specifically that you like so much? I mean, you described them at the at the outset, right? They're sort of the ones that you uh, yeah. that really captured your imagination. So they were they were the last of an era of tractor design that had um, got John Deere into the tractor business. And they were never, for a large period of time, they were not number one in the tractor business. And that very tail end when these tractors that I collect were being marketed, they were developing a line of tractors, moving away from just a two-cylinder engine to a multi-cylinder engine. Those were being designed while these tractors I collect were being marketed. And so there was a seven year period where they were secretly designing a brand new tractor that no one had ever seen. And uh, I just, I find it intriguing that these were the last of that two cylinder era. And they were the um, just, there was a major division in the, in the development of tractors within the company. And and that's where I guess I chose. They, they intrigued me. The ones I collect are, are smaller. They're not big, giant, heavy tractors. They're easy to truck around to shows. They're easy to work on in design but they they look cool like they're the industrial design that went into them is is pleasing to the eye i think and they they look cool and yeah. i enjoy them. like mm. some of those great cars of the same era as well and you've collected yeah. a lot of them right i got i gather do you have you have is it 30 or more i have somewhere between 30 and 40 and people will <laughs> say how do you not know exactly how many you have i have that are in different forms of uh, completeness some of those are hard to count and have a few that aren't home yet. They're still waiting abroad to be uh, delivered home or trucked home. So, yeah, I, I'd say at the current moment, I'm somewhere in 30 to 40 range. Where do you find them? 
all over the place. I have traveled as far as southern Louisiana to the Gulf of Mexico to pick up tractors. I've found plenty of tractors here in Canada, but a lot of the really rare ones or low production, low build number ones that I find are usually in the U.S., either at auctions, you know, live auctions, online auctions. I've bought them privately. Uh, some of the ones I chase after, as I said, that are built for high clear crops or high bedded crops or are of really odd fuel types, like propane, for instance, those tractors were marketed and sold mostly in the southern U.S. So uh, sometimes I have to travel a distance to find those and uh, other times they will show up closer to home by way of other collectors who have owned them, uh, you know, over the years. Are they? I, I, I hope this isn't an indelicate question, but are they expensive? Uh, someone asked me this just the other day, and the <laughs> answer really is that it's all over the map, which is right. a great part of the hobby. You can go and buy a running tractor for maybe less than $2,000 and you know own a tractor and take it in a parade or to a show and, and have fun with it. I have also witnessed in the last couple of years uh, some records being set by John Deere Antique Tractors. Uh, I sat and watched a tractor bring $350,000. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah, with uh, a 15, I think, percent buyer's premium on top of that number. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of money trading hands for some of the very unique and very low, as I said, low production numbers can sometimes bring some wildness out in some auctions. No kidding. Uh, and, and you're going to put this all on display, which is great because people will be able to come and see it. How, I, this is something you've planned for quite a while, I gather, but how's it coming yeah. along, the, the, the museum idea? And, and, and clearly collecting tractors is not like collecting stamps. You need somewhere to put them, right? Yeah. And the funny thing, you know, I've built a building here on my property and a lot of people that live near me or know me have asked, you know, oh, you're putting up a museum for the tractors. And I said, actually, it's not really to house tractors in because it's not big enough for tractors. It's sizable, but I could I could get several tractors in it. But it's mostly for my collection of small items being models, farm toys, signs, old sales literature and memorabilia. So, And some of that stuff is just as valuable, if not more valuable than some of the real tractors. And so I've always wanted to have a proper home to store and display that stuff in. And I really, I really am looking forward to sharing uh, my collection of artifacts from the company and the history of the company with others, because it really does bring joy to people to either reminisce or to learn uh, things they didn't know of, you know, the history of the company or its products. And, and when do you think, I know you, you were saying that it's been a lot of work, but when do you think you might be able to open the doors in Glencoe? I should mention it's my, in Glencoe, Ontario, in southwestern yeah, Ontario. Yeah, so we're just west of London, and my hopes are by the end of August, uh, I can have things in order and open up the doors. Uh, I would have hoped to have it opened, you know, a year ago, but it ta everything takes time and more time than you expect. You can find him on Twitter. His handle is Dear Dave, as in John Dear Dave, which is <laughs> easy to find. Uh, Dave McEachern, thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate your time.